right. Had that for another night. I was like, I'm pretty tired. I think it's time for bed. And then I was like, oh yeah, it's trash night. <laughs> we'll get that out. All right. So we are in the middle of the chapter. Let me pull it up here real quick. The book is turning pages slowly here, sorry. Alright, approximately page. Let's sort of review starting on page. Let's see, 96 or thereabouts. It is the 12 principles, yep. So just to review from last week, welcome those who disagree with you. And so there's going to be these two groups, weak in faith and strong in faith, on that specific issue. So we have to be charitable toward one another. And then on page 99 or thereabouts it says those who have freedom of conscience must not look down on those who don't. So the strong should not despise the weak. The next one is closely related on page 100. Those who consci whose conscience restricts them must not be judgmental toward those who have freedom. The weak should not judge the strong. Strong don't despise the weak. Weak don't judge the strong. And then, number four, each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience. Your conscience is for you. Your conscience is before God. Your conscience is something you should be fully persuaded on, not going back and forth, not trying to conform to everyone else, uh, simply to fit in. Number five, assume that others are partaking or refraining for the glory of God. It is closely related to numbers two and three, but what is our assessment of why people are doing things? What do we think their motivation is? It's possible for us to approach people's motivation and assume you're just doing it because you don't love God. You're just doing it because you're too uptight or those sorts of accusations, and that's not the way we should approach these kinds of issues. And then number six, don't judge one another in these matters because we will all someday stand before the judgment seat of God. When he says judge, he is talking about an assessment of their standing before God. He's not saying don't think at all about what they're doing, whether you should do it, whether it's right or wrong, whether you should change, whether they should change, all those sorts of things because there are circumstances in which Someone is doing something that they are assuming is a conscience issue, and it's actually a right and wrong issue. So, um, let's say, for example, uh, someone has a habit of lying, and they're just a new believer, and they've never been taught that lying is wrong, and that it fits with the character of Satan instead of the character of God, and all those sorts of things. There is certainly a case in which we should come alongside that person and show them from Scripture, this is a sin issue, not just a, you do this, I do that kind of an issue. And so uh, certainly, judgment doesn't mean don't make assessments. It means that we're not the final authority. So we come today to number seven. Someone want to, yes. Yeah. 
right. which I think is what we think judgment is. Right. So you have the secular world saying, don't judge. Mm-hmm. Right? Your Bible says don't judge, don't judge. Right. But that's not what it's talking about, right? And so, correct me if I'm wrong, the way I reconcile it in my mind is yes, the mutual sense in every way possible in a sense, right? But it's making a final decision. In this manner. Sure. So, if Paul talks about how he took this shortcut in his time. Yeah. Yeah. So, as you're saying that, here's here's kind of how I would think about it. You have you have who, you have um, what, and you have result. So, God um, is the one who um, he he's the one who evaluates everything. what I was going to put for the what for this one. We'll come back to that in a second. So you have God, you have, um, let's say, church, and you have conscience. So what does God judge? We could just say God judges everything. What does the church judge? The church is supposed to evaluate salvation, and the result is accept or exclude. Uh, We could put discipline or membership here. And then conscience judges an individual in terms of thoughts, words, actions, and basically it would be excuse or accuse, we could call that guilt. And then, probably as a subset of salvation, would be things like sin issues. So God is the one who evaluates everything and meets out actual punishment for right and wrong actions. Punishment or reward, I should should say. 
the church has a God-given responsibility to assess someone's profession of faith. A subset of which is, when someone is sinning, we're supposed to confront that sin. Uh, Galatians 6. When someone among you is sinning, approach that person with a spirit of humility so that you yourself are not tempted. When someone is um, closely related to that but not identical is when someone is suffering, come alongside, seek to encourage, bear one another's burden, and so forth. The conclusion of the church is not to mete out actual reward or punishment. We do not... um, execute someone for being rebellious toward their parents like like the Israelites theoretically would have done, right? But we do have a responsibility to accept or to exclude from fellowship, uh, which would be a component of church discipline. Then when it comes to our individual conscience, the individual conscience is supposed to judge us individually in terms of thoughts, words, and actions, and the result is that it excuses or accuses us. So then the question comes in, When I look at someone else, what's my approach supposed to be? If it's with regard to conscience, we have to recognize all the limitations of it based on what we've already studied, and we have to recognize that God's Word is the one that's going to evaluate, which, to a certain extent, God uses His Word to evaluate everything through the power of the Holy Spirit, so there's verses in John that the Spirit is going to convict the world, all of those sorts of things. Um, me seeing someone sinning and making an assessment of that is probably a subset of the authority of the church, the church corporately. So it's not me off on my own. I'm the one who goes around and decides who's right, who's wrong. And that's the spirit sometimes that people get when it comes to issues of right and wrong in the context of the church. It is my individual job to assess what you are doing and to fix it and make it right. But that's a response. What's that? Yeah. Right. That's why I think it fits in here. Because what's the process of the church assessing someone's profession of faith? It starts out with there's a repeated issue that seems to be sinful. Someone goes and confronts that person. There's a couple of possibilities. One is it's not actually a sin issue, and it's something where someone is bringing this to bear in here, and that has to be sorted out. The other is that it's actually a sin issue, and then it's like there's two choices. The person repents or the person doesn't repent. And then it keeps moving up the line until you get to a point where this person on an actual sin issue that the Bible is clear on is, is unwilling to change, unwilling to repent. The church says, on, based on these, all of these things that we've observed, we corporately are saying we have to go here because you're living in sin, unwilling to repent, and all of those sorts of things. 
So I would put what your scenario, Bob, I would put it under the context of this. The question is, who gives us the authority to make the judgment? God gives the church the authority to make the judgment corporately, but it starts at the level of individual believers being in close fellowship with one another and observing things right or wrong, encouraging one another toward right, confronting one another about the wrong. And then as more and more people are involved, by the time the decision is actually made about this, it's supposed to be the whole church involved in it, not just one person. Because we can all get to a point where we might not get along with somebody. And if it's somebody just on a quest to go after somebody else, then that's where it kind of goes wrong. But he's speaking there about unbelievers. So I think Paul has a valid point. If someone's part of a different congregation, my take on it would be if I had a close friend who's living in unrepentant sin and I confront that person about it, then my simple answer would probably be that my responsibility would be to go to the leadership of his church and say, here's my friend, I've confronted him about this, he's unwilling to repent because they're the ones that are going to have to lead their church to actually make a decision about all of these sorts of things. And so, again, it's not something that I can really solve on my own by myself, unless the person says, I was wrong, and, and then turns away from it at that point. And we have to say, what sort of things are worth escalating? Someone was really tired and had a really busy week and was frustrated and said something unkind to us. Okay. There's things that fall under let love cover a multitude of sin. Now, if someone starts showing a pattern of extreme anger and lashing out, that probably maybe starts to cross the line into, hey, this seems like you have a really a problem with anger in your life, something like that. But again, I mean, uh, it's easy for us to put things that frustrate us in the category of church discipline. It's easy for us to put things that... Uh, we do ourselves in the category of church discipline. It's easy for us to put things that um, just those sorts of things are the things that we tend to want. And, but, but what God says is they're things that are undermining the testimony of that individual and affecting the unity of the church overall. And so, um, you know, the list is probably longer than churches tend to practice and shorter than sometimes we feel it should be. So. Yeah, so he says this Matthew 7, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And the way you judge, you will be judged by your standard of measure will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not the log in your own eye? Um, I think, I mean, the context of Jesus teaching here, I think probably part of it is a condemnation of the Pharisees. 
Because, I mean, think about the extreme hypocrisy of the Pharisees. We love the law, but we're going to murder Christ on the basis of false accusation. We love God, but we're going to mistreat widows and add sorts of, all sorts of unnecessary burdens to God's people, and then not really be willing to consistently follow them ourselves. I think when Jesus says, don't judge so you will not be judged, he's essentially saying something he says in another parable, which is the story of the servant who's caught being um, cheating, his, cheating his master. His master forgives him this huge debt. Then he goes and finds somebody that owes him 50 bucks, and he's like, I'm going to throw you in jail and get your family sold as slaves and all that sort of thing if you don't pay up right now. I think Jesus is saying the leniency or the harshness by which you judge other people corresponds to some extent to how God's going to evaluate you. Not ultimately, because it has to do with our standing in Christ, but at least at a basic level, someone who's so hard-hearted to judge people uh, harshly. And, um, and so the question is, what is the judgment? The judgment is... Um, how we evaluate people. Can we say it's only about salvation? I don't know. I think it's assessing the actions of other people. I think if Jesus is essentially saying, be careful how you assess those actions of other people because it's really easy for us to be super hard on other people and then want, want whoever is over us to be really lenient toward us. So, yeah. So this is a good discussion because I think it ties into the question of conscience. And so, why does conscience feel very real? Because it's connected to God's future judgment of everything. How does conscience tie into the church? To the extent that the issue of conscience that is in question is an issue of right and wrong. It is a standard by which, based tied to scripture, the church is evaluating sin issues, which ultimately means we're assessing so the status of someone's salvation to the extent that's humanly possible with a view toward either accepting or excluding someone based on those things. Is, and um, the tricky thing about conscience is there are right and wrong issues in there. There are um, house rules, if you will, in there. There's politeness in society things in there. And so we have to recognize even though our conscience is going to have the same strong response to all of those sorts of things, we have to recognize that there are categories of things in our conscience, which I think we actually get into in the next chapter, so maybe we'll talk about it more when we get there. But does that kind of get at, is that helpful? Okay. And I'm not saying I've got this all figured out, but that's um, how I would explain it. We individually, I would say, yes. We, as a church, have to make those assessments, and God ultimately will make those assessments. So, yeah. yeah. All right, so number seven. Someone will read that. I think it's page 107. Read the description and the verse. Yeah, that'd be great. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of the brother. I know, and I am persuaded, 
So he's saying we both have responsibilities toward one another, whether we're strong or weak, on the particular issue in question. Um, there's a really strong, and there's a lot that's said to the stronger Christian in the specific situation. I think it's helpful for us to think about, as this section talks about, why does God place so much of the responsibility on the strong brother instead of on the weak brother, if the weak brother is the one whose conscience is actually ill-informed? couple of reasons. One obvious reason is that they are strong, so God calls on them to bear with the weakness of the weak. So, in a sense, they are the ones who have more flexibility. They are the ones who, therefore, have, to a certain extent, greater responsibility. If you remember back to our chart from last time, they have two columns of choices, and the weak brother really only has one column of choice because that's how their conscience is constraining them. The strong can eat meat or not eat meat, the weak can only not eat meat. The strong can observe holy days or not observe holy days. The weak can only observe holy days because that's what their conscience compels them to do. It says a few uh, sentences later, another reason the bulk of responsibility falls on the strong has to do with the nature of conscience. We're supposed to obey it. The strong have to be very careful that they are not encouraging the weak to disobey their conscience. And so in that sense, they have a greater responsibility. To highlight a point that I've tried to emphasize previously, because sometimes I think we've been careless in our explanation of these things at different points in churches, is it's not that seeing someone do blank makes me upset. There's a difference between I'm upset because someone does something and I'm led into sin because someone does something. Because there's lots of things that irritate us for a variety of reasons at a variety of points in a variety of ways. So if we said, you can only do the things that don't bother me, those of you who are married understand that that list can change from day to day based on a number of factors, and sometimes it just boils down to we're being unreasonable. And so the thing is not the person over here gets to decide what bothers them and then make everybody else conform to their expectations. Instead, this person has to say, will what I do cause this person to step over the line of their conscience and actually sin? If so, I'm not going to do it because my love for them, my concern for their spiritual well-being is more important than me exercising legitimate freedom to do a particular thing. How might your use of freedom bring spiritual harm to other professing believers? It's not spelled out specifically, but one commentator gives two main possibilities. First, our engaging in an activity that another believer thinks is wrong may encourage the other believer to do it as well. Then they've sinned because they've violated their conscience. Secondly, an ostentatious, a deliberate, clear, um, in-your-face sort of exercising my freedom on a particular matter may so deeply offend someone he or she may turn from the faith altogether. My tension with that second one is it almost sounds like he's saying the thing that we just said it's not about. Right? Because he's using the word offend in that second sentence along the lines of 
bother, upset, those sorts of things. But I think it's a valid point, even though I'm not sure I'm happy with the way it's worded, in the sense that if someone sees you exercising freedom with such disregard for the concerns of everyone else in the church, uh, it's possible that that could be something in a process that would lead them to say, the people in the church don't care about me, they don't love me, those sorts of things. I think that's the real issue. Not that they're upset at this level, but rather that if I live my life in such a way that I don't show love to the people around me, if I know it's really going to bother somebody if I do a particular thing, even though it may not quite fall into the criteria that Paul is talking about, it does fall under the broad umbrella of love. I just ought to show love to people around me. So, let's throw out an example. If I know that it might really bother some of you if I wore shorts and a t-shirt to preach on Sunday morning, even though there's no biblical requirement that says I can't do that, okay, then probably I should keep wearing a suit and tie. Is it a moral issue? No. But some of us have in our consciences that it is a moral issue, possibly. But we have to just be wise and careful and loving. So, um, Right. Which I think is where his point is going. At the very least, that's going to make that person not want to be a part of that church, and potentially it could make that person not want to be a part of any church, and then that would be a, a, a grievous harm. He uses the illustration of page 109, uh, the two of us use modern Bible translations, ESV, NIV, instead of King James Version. This is something that I've often thought about. I mean, the typical reality for me is that I'm not usually asked to speak at places where that would be an issue. Um, but if I feel like I will not be able to communicate well using the King James because it's unfamiliar and some of the words are difficult to pronounce and all those sorts of things, what is my higher responsibility? To communicate the scripture clearly and accurately or to make people happy by using the translation they prefer? It's a sticky situation, right? But, I mean, I think the bottom line is I don't know how... I, I, I think a simple thing would just be to say, if somebody says, hey, come preach for us, come teach this class, whatever, just say up front if you think that might be an issue, this is what I plan to do, and if, if you think that that would not be the best thing, then maybe it would be better if you ask someone else. And, I mean, I think there's ways to work around that sort of thing. Now, if the church was, if the church was in a position where that was the translation that they used, and then a new pastor comes in and is convinced that it should be a different way, I think there's wisdom and patience and time in the process of moving toward a particular goal, as opposed to just coming in and saying, Let's just change it. I mean, that's probably not really the wisest course of action. Um, again, put it through the grid of, is this person going to sin? 
So if someone is convinced, here, here's a, an, an interesting scenario. Someone is convinced that the King James Version is the only Bible that's God's Word. That's not true, but someone might be convinced of that. So if you say that, and then I concede that point, am I supporting a wrong view of the Bible? And <laughs> that's a tension. At the same time, because of what we've been talking about conscience, here's the question. If I went to a church that was King James only and preached from the NIV, would it cause them to stop using the King James and switch to the NIV and violate their conscience? Probably not, but it's something to consider. I think the, I think the better, I, yeah, I mean, I think the better thing is just to say it's wiser to avoid situations that are going to be a problem instead of being stubborn in the middle of them because it just, there's, there's not enough time in life to uh, go around causing problems for yourself and other people. Another common misunderstanding about the stumbling block idea. I think it's interesting that he picks up, so I'm going to disagree with his application, but agree with the principle that he ends with. In Christian books and from Christian pulpits, one sometimes hears Romans 14 applied something like this. Believers should refrain from drinking alcohol out of deference to other Christians who might be inclined to overindulge. These other Christians are the weaker brothers and sisters, weak because they have a weakness for alcohol. The principle, of course, is valid enough. Christians should recognize the weaknesses of fellow Christians and do what they can to keep them from succumbing to those weaknesses. But we must point out that this idea of weakness is not what Paul is talking about in Romans 14. The weak brother or sister in this chapter is the one who is weak in faith, they believe that their faith does not allow them to do certain things. The weakness has nothing to do with an emotional or physical susceptibility. It is a theological weakness. So, just to get out of the way, I'm not advocating that I agree with what he's saying as far as I think that the position of strength is that we should get to a point where we're all okay with going to Olive Garden or the bar and having a few rounds as long as we don't get drunk. Because there's a whole lot of challenges with that, and I just think that there's a number of reasons why that's probably not wise. That being said, the main point he makes at the very end is a very key point. The weakness has nothing to do with an emotional or physical susceptibility. It is a theological weakness. If I really like Pringles, and I see somebody eating Pringles, and I, they say, uh, and I say to them, you can't eat Pringles next to me because then I'm going to eat Pringles. That's not what Paul's talking about in Romans 14. It's not a theological objection. It's just a, for health reasons, for whatever the set of reasons is, I don't want to do this, so I don't want to be exposed to that. Now, should I be potentially aware that something bothers a particular person? Let's take a tricky issue that comes up in churches sometimes with regards to diet. Should you eat bread? Theologically speaking, all food is given by God, so we should eat it with thankfulness. Practically speaking, someone might choose not to eat certain things because of how it makes them feel, because of a particular genetic problem that may, means it doesn't work for them, all those sorts of things. 
let's say that someone says that I am never going to have people over, or let, let me phrase it this way, I will never go over to someone's house if they invite me because I might end up being exposed to bread and I don't want to be exposed to bread and so I'm not going to do that. There, I've encountered people who are that way. As the host, you have a responsibility for saying, I need to be kind to those around me. There are people with celiac disease. There are people with legitimate things going on. There are other people for whom that specific issue becomes more important to them than the unity of the church, serving other people, and even proclaiming the gospel. So when any one issue becomes so important to us that we are willing to put it above the unity of the church, serving one another, and proclaiming the gospel, we need to reevaluate our priorities. I should show love to somebody who has a particular difficulty, but we have to keep make sure that our priorities are straight with these things. And again, come back to this idea that it is a theological issue. I am convinced if I do X, it is sin. Not, I'm convinced that if I do blank, it's a bad idea, or it's bad for me, or I don't like it. Um, so, number eight. Someone want to read number eight? Jesus clearly said, it's not what you take in, it's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. It's not food that makes you acceptable to God, it is your relationship with God that makes you acceptable to God on the work of Christ. Uh, we already talked about the example of Peter. Uh, I thought this was an interesting comment. There is something striking and counterintuitive about Paul's reasoning. Paul appropriates an argument the strong want to use for their side. What we eat or drink doesn't matter to God, so don't make a big deal about it, to instead chasten the strong. Paul instead says, why not voluntarily abstain if your freedom could harm the faith of a wavering Christian? This usually doesn't come up, but we should at least be willing to take that step as needed. Um, there's many other matters this could apply to. The kingdom of God is not a matter of schooling choices, political parties, musical styles, and go on, and so on. Are those things important? Potentially. Should we make them the most important? No. Um, dividing over the less important matters does not make for peace and mutual upbuilding or edification. All right, so we want to read number nine.
Okay. I don't think this means we can never talk about it, but I think it does mean it shouldn't be the main topic of our conversation, right? Um, I mean, the process of calibrating our conscience means at some point it has to be discussed. I have to accurately preach what the Bible says. If you so see someone really struggling and something is, is becoming an obstacle for them because of a, a conscience calibration issue, I think that there's a time and a place to have that discussion. But again, it's the attitude of what Paul was saying about something is, is going to offend someone, so I like get in their face and I do it just to point it out to them. Or something is really bothering me, so I go after someone, I just keep harping on it with them. That doesn't promote unity and peace. Connected with this, we have to, again, beware of the danger of lawlessness and of legalism. Someone who's strong may go beyond their strength and actually commit sin. Someone who's weak may increase their weakness and actually cross the line into saying something is necessary for Christianity when it's not. So we have to uh, be careful of both those errors. Yes? In connection with our study through the statement of faith, I think we have to recognize that our certainty on issues decreases the further we move away from clear statements of Scripture. The Bible says something like, don't lie to one another. That's pretty clear. Should I... Is it okay for me not to tell someone all of the details of their surprise party? That's kind of several steps removed from don't lie to one another, although it's something we should at least consider, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great parallel. So, um, all right, number 10. You want to read number 10? So here's the question, do we view our conscience as an unnecessary burden or as a blessing? And according to this passage, we should be able to view it as a blessing, as, as a guide, as a blessing. And um, it's kind of like, you know, your sense of touch. When I was a little kid, you know, your parents always say, if you touch the stove when it's hot, you're going to get burned. And you're not always sure whether to believe them. Or you're like, 
instead of, you know, like, I don't know, putting a metal pot of water on to see if the unit is still hot, I'm just going to touch it with my finger real quick. That wasn't a good idea. It wasn't a gas stove, so it wasn't a terrible burn, but it, it sizzled my fingers pretty good on the electric stove. The sense of touch is a blessing. It It's the thing that makes us, oh, i got to pull my hand back. Or it's the thing that's like, oh, this blanket is really nice as I'm laying on it taking a nap. You know, that sort of thing. It's a blessing in both ways, because it protects us and because it helps us to enjoy life, and that's how conscience should function. All right, number 11. I think we got two more. I think we got time to get through them real quick. So if we have any questions about what this looks like, I think we look at Christ. He was far more patient than we will ever be. He was far more willing to sacrifice. I mean, think Philippians 2. God of heaven come down humbly to dwell as a man. Would that we had that measure of humility and that measure of patience. A quick point. Verse 2, please his neighbor. The goal is not that our motivation in life is to make everybody happy with us, but rather that if there is a choice between pleasing myself and serving others, I will choose to serve others. All right, the number 12. Last one, real short. Someone want to read that one? If Christ has, has, has um, welcomed us, are we better than Christ? Are we above Christ? Do we get to do our own thing? We ought to be willing to live up to his example, which we often fall for. Us. So, all right. Um, I think these are, it's not a perfect section, but I think it's a really helpful section, just especially because it's tied through all those passages and thinking through those principles. So, um, didn't get quite as far as I planned, but I think it was a really good discussion. So next week, we will look at chapter 6, which sort of goes into the question of, all right, how do I fix my conscience? How do I reconcile my conscience with people who have different consciences, like in the church in the same culture? Number six, how do you relate to people in other cultures when your consciences disagree? Which I think is a really helpful question uh, in a variety of ways. So we'll look at that one next week. All right, let's pray, and we'll wrap up for this morning with this part. Thank you, Lord, for this discussion. Thank you for the truth of your word. Please give us wisdom. Give us love. Help us to follow Christ's example. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.